Welcome to the teachings of Pastor Mike Yost of the Springs Calvary Chapel in Habern, Idaho. Please join us as we study the Word of God. If you have your Bible, you can turn in it. Genesis chapter 46 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, and uh, Lord willing, we'll cover uh, a bit of ground. We're in the life of Joseph. Joseph, who was uh, despised by his brothers, even though God had chosen him from a very early age, had blessed him and given visions of his future. And now on the backside of uh, his life, his brothers are in need of him. They come and, and we saw Joseph, how he was faithful and just to forgive them their sins and cleanse them of all their unrighteousness. And we see in Joseph this picture of Jesus Christ, Jesus in Genesis. As we see all the, the things that Jesus would do for us, uh, we see Joseph as a model, as an example, as a picture of that. And uh, you remember when they came together, they were having such great celebration, and there was the reunion, and Pharaoh commanded uh, um, Joseph and the brothers to go tell, or commanded the brothers to go tell uh, their father Jacob to get in these carts that I'm sending and bring everything back with you. I'm going to take good care of you because there's a famine coming, but I'm going to take good care of you. And so we pick up at verse 46. Before we do that, I just want to pray. If we'll just pray that the Lord would uh, illuminate our hearts. Father God, we thank you that you inhabit our praises. We thank you, Lord, that your word is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing our soul and our spirit, helping us to see who we are, and in seeing us and seeing you, to be conformed into your image, to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, that we might attain to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. So we got a journey in front of us, church. But uh, we see progress. And here we are in Genesis chapter 46, picking up at verse 1. So Israel took his journey. I just want to notice it is Israel, right? We look at Jacob. His name was changed by Jesus when they were wrestling that night at Penuel uh, at the Jabbok River. And he gave him a new name. You know, he broke him and he became born again. He became a new creation, that new creation, Israel, governed by God. Israel, now the father of Joseph and this tribe called Israel, took his journey with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to God, or to the God of his father Isaac. Then God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here I am. So he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. This is really cool. So, just as Pharaoh had commanded, just as Joseph had made the way, uh, Israel, Jacob, now brings his families, all of them, the grandkids and everybody, and he's traveling down to Egypt. He stops in Beersheba along the way. It's the southernmost outpost in the land of Canaan as they head out into the desert over to Egypt. And they stopped there and they made sacrifices to God. And I think it's rather significant. If you remember back in our study of Genesis, Abraham in Genesis 22 pitched his tent, dug a well there at Beersheba, the well of the oath that God promised him. And then Isaac, his son, also 
dug another well, redug that same well uh, in Beersheba. Um, and, and God spoke to them there, and they gave sacrifices, and they called on the name of the Lord. And now here we see as uh, Jacob, Israel, is leaving the promised land towards Egypt, he stops. And it says, in this place, as he offers sacrifices, God, the God of Israel, spoke to him in visions of the night, okay? And uh, it's, it harkens back to 40, more than 40 years earlier when Jacob was a man on the run, and he was heading up to his uncle Laban, away from his brother Esau, when he first really had an encounter with the living God, where he saw the ladder uh, with angels ascending up and down upon it, and at the top was none other than Jesus Christ himself. And he was given this, this encouragement that I'm going to send you up there, you're going to get a wife, he actually got more than he bargained for, and, uh, but I'm bringing you back, okay? And he uses the same verbiage, Jacob, Jacob, here I am. I'm the God of your father, do not fear. And these are the, the words that he had said to him 40 years early, and I'm sure it would just touch his soul as he was thinking all of these things through. And now he was about to leave that promised land again. And so God brings this reassurance through a dream. And what does he say is, don't fear, do not fear to go down to Egypt. That indicates that he was afraid. He, he, there was trepidation, anxiety, uncertainty. I don't know what is out in front of me. And uh, he knew the story of his grandfather, Abraham, who went to Egypt. And that didn't turn out so good. It was an expression of Abraham's unbelief that God couldn't deliver him from a famine. And we know that all kinds of evil eventually came out of that little pile. And he also remembered that God specifically spoke to his father, Isaac. And he says, don't go down to Egypt when there was a famine. And now here he is at Beersheba. He's about to leave the promised land and go to Egypt. And no doubt he's concerned. He's afraid. And so what does God say? Do not be afraid, right? His word often to us in our life, don't be afraid. Um, and also, it's worth noting that in all of what Jacob Israel would know growing up as grandson son of Abraham and Isaac he would know of the promise that God had made to Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 15 when he made a covenant with Abraham to make him a great nation or renewed that covenant um, and in that he had mentioned that your descendants we know the sand of the sea and the, as the stars in heaven, but also your descendants will be foreigners or strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them for 400 years. And could, I could think that might be on Jacob's mind as he's, uh, you know, about to leave the promised land. Why do you want to leave the promised land? This is what God gave me. And uh, there's a promise also somewhere out there that we're going to be slaves and we're going to live as foreigners in this strange land for four centuries. Um, and so he's got all these things. But in verse 3, what does God say? He says, I will make you a great nation there. And so God's work isn't done, even though the location, the situation might have changed. And how often is that the case in our lives, where we head out into the, the word or the world, we've got the word of the Lord, we know he's never going to leave us, he's never going to forsake us, and all of a sudden we come to this fork in the road or a detour where we can't go down the road we thought we were going to go down, but does that mean that God's plan was thwarted? Sometimes we need to kind of 
regroup. And here God says, I will make you a great nation there. So his purpose was to bring them down to Egypt to spare them from death in the famine, but also they would live segregated in the land of Goshen. As the Egyptians loathed the Hebrews, they really didn't like them. They're kind of stinky people, they thought, literally is what they thought. And so they would live in what came to be known in modern terms, especially during uh, the, the, the time of the Jews in Europe as a ghetto. A ghetto literally is an enclave of Jews. And that has come to mean nowadays we talk about inner city and, and areas that are, you know, not necessarily the best part of town, but it was really used to describe these enclaves of Jews that didn't intermix or mingle with the people around them. And so this is what's happening now. They're going to go down there and they're going to be this great nation. They're going to be in this exclusive place segregated from the others. And it's almost kind of like uh, God is taking them out of where they were into a, into a place where, kind of like a mother's womb, he's going to grow them from who they are into this great nation. And, you know, we shouldn't forget in all of this that Jesus lived in Egypt. Jesus grew up in Egypt. If you remember, they had to flee because Herod was going to kill all the infants in Bethlehem, and the angel told them, get up and go. And they did, and they spent many years in Egypt before God called Jesus back out of Egypt, back into the promised land. So again, we're seeing all these pictures of Jesus in Genesis as this kind of develops this way. Um, and I, I, just a, a, a strange kind of thought, but we're living in a land today of immigrants and refugees. I mean, it's in the news, it's on the headlines all around the planet. We have our borders and all that kind of stuff. But Idaho itself is, is swelling with immigrants, people who are coming into our state. And yet, I, I think it's interesting. I was listening to uh, the radio, and there was a politician, and they were talking on that. But one of the things they had said is as they've been going out canvassing people uh, for the elections and all the different things that they're doing, they would ask a room full of people, everybody, in fact, let's try that right now. Let's try this. Everybody that is Idaho born, raise your hand. Okay, put your hands down. Everybody that's not Idaho born, raise your hand. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Hello. Okay. And this, this politician, they made the comment that a lot of these uh, refugees from these states that have been oppressing them. There, there's a famine of justice, a famine of truth, a famine of reality in their land, right? And so they're coming here, and we're getting often quite conservative Christians, and it's kind of bolstering the state. And the politician even made the, the comment that some of these immigrants just might be the saviors of Idaho. They might be the ones that gird us up and allow us to stand for the things of the Lord. And, you know, so I know it's easy for us. It's always easy to bash on the, the newbies or people that are from not from here, but most of us are not from here. So <laughs> I just took a survey. You saw it yourself. So <laughs> at any rate, okay, so they're going to go down to a foreign land, okay? And then God comforts and assures Jacob. He says, and Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. If you've ever seen this in the old movies, right? Somebody dies, and what do they have to do? They pull the eyelids down, you know, so they can rest in peace. And that's basically what that phrase is talking about. Joseph will be there when you die. He's going to be there to comfort you in your old age. And that was good comfort and good assurance, you know, that I'm not going to be forsaken, but I will be with my family. 
verse uh, 5 and reading on through. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob, their little ones and their wives, in the carts which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. So they took their livestock and their goods which they acquired in the land of Canaan and went to Egypt. Jacob and all his descendants with him, his sons, his sons' sons, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his descendants he brought with them to Egypt. Now these were the names of the children of Israel, Jacob and his sons who went to Egypt. Stop. I'm not going to read for a while here. What you're going to get is a list of all the kids and all the grandkids that come from the 12 tribes of Israel. And uh, I'm going to kind of skip over that. But I did emphasize as I was reading all, all, they all came. Nobody got left behind. So whoever was now a descendant of Jacob on the tribes of Israel, the whole family, the whole kit and caboodle was on their way down to Egypt. And picking up at verse 26, all the persons who went with Jacob to Egypt, who came from his body, besides Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two persons. All the persons of the house of Jacob who went were 70, okay? And so basically, you've got the 66 that were named, then you've got Jacob, and you've got Joseph and his two sons. Those are four more. That makes a 70. And this is that thought of what that's about. Now, I will say, as you go through the scriptures and you look at the, um, the, the Jews, and they'll often look at numbers as being significant, and 70 is quite often a significant number um, to the Jews, uh, seven being a number for completeness, and, and 70 just being kind of a, a prophetic picture of completeness. But in this, we get these 70 people, and I will say, if you read in the book of Acts, in chapter 7 at verse 14, where Stephen is giving his defense before the Sanhedrin, he mentions that there were 75 who went down to Egypt. And the best way to reconcile that is that Stephen, in Jesus' day, would have been speaking from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. And as you look into the Septuagint, they use the number 75, and they include some of the grandsons that were born to Joseph while he was in Egypt. So, if you get people say, there's a contra contradiction there, it's like it, it works out, it reconciles, but fundamentally it's these 70, and that's the, the thing you want to kind of hold in your head. It doesn't matter if you hold 70 or 75, but the point is that's the whole posse. That's the whole kit and caboodle. There's 70 of them. They're picking up their tent pegs. They're striking camp, and they're now moving to a completely new place, a new nation, the whole tribe of Israel, and that's what the Scriptures is trying to help us see here. It's interesting as we go through this, um, from the time God called Abraham, it took at least 25 years to add one son, Isaac, okay? He waited and waited and waited for 25 years, and then it took Isaac 60 years to add another son of Israel. That would be Jacob, okay? Kind of, and it took 50 or 60 years for Jacob to add the 12 sons, the tribes of Israel and Dinah, his daughter, but in the... 430 years, Israel would leave Egypt. After that 400 years, they would leave with 600,000 men, which they protract to be several million. And it's kind of interesting how that, that can work out, the, the numbers on that. Um, and so we get uh, Genesis 46, uh, verses 28 and through 30. 
Then he sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out before him the way to Goshen. And they came to the land of Goshen. So Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father in Israel. Now, Goshen is just a geographical place name, okay? Maybe you're familiar with a world map and you see Africa and at the north part of Africa is the Mediterranean Sea on the north side's Europe and to the right-hand margin there's Israel um, at, the, at the far east end of the Mediterranean Sea. Well, they're going down from Israel into what's known as the Nile River Delta, okay? This is an area where the Nile River flowing north through Africa spreads out. There's many fingers and they're really not tributaries, but their fingers going out to the ocean. And when it would flood every year, all the silt would flow down into this land of Goshen, the Nile River Delta, and it was extremely fertile. It was some of the best property in the planet, okay? Part of the reason they were able to do well. Although I will say, we do know we are in the middle of a drought, okay? These are the, this is the reason why they moved. So even the land of Goshen wouldn't be, you know, overflowing with milk and honey to speak. But nevertheless, it was a very, very nice piece of real estate they were moving into. Um, so they sent Joseph before, before him, or they sent Judah before him to Joseph. I love this. Now Judah is the leader, right? We've watched Reuben's the firstborn, Simeon's second, Levi's third. Then you get to Judah, number four. But here, Judah is the leader. We saw this developing when they were going through all that testing and Joseph was trying to see if his brothers had learned their lesson, if they had repented, if they would confess their sins before him. And Judah was the one who took point and Judah was the one who took ownership and said, if anything happens to Benjamin, I will, I will give myself to be a sacrifice for him. Again, Judah being the namesake for the, li the lion of the tribe of Judah, G Jesus Christ coming out of that line, we see Judah now taking point. It's kind of cool to see Judah is now le leading Israel into uh, Egypt, and he's going to care for them and provide for them there. So, uh, and it also says at the end that uh, um, Jacob says, let me, now let me die since I've seen your face because you are still alive, right? Now, this is a beautiful reunion, right? Finally, I can rest in peace. I've been bereft of you my whole life, my son, my beloved son. In my, my opinion, my first son, because you're the first son of the wife that I loved. And, and so when, it, when the brothers sold Joseph and reported that a wild beast had torn him to pieces, you remember it just, it, it broke Jacob's heart. And it's been broken all these years. And finally, that broken heart is mended. As I go through this in this family reunion, I can't help but think uh, it's high family reunion season. They're going off all over right now this time of year as people are traveling to be with re relatives, in-laws, outlaws, all the different people that you get to hang out with for the summer. And, and in some cases, there's some people that you've been praying for your whole Christian life, that they could come to know the Lord. And you know, it's always too soon to quit praying. It's always too soon to quit praying. We don't know what God is going to do, but we do know, we hear stories every year of reunions and reconciliation and, and, and people who come together and, and uh, they're able to um, put away all of the old grudges and, and, and have this fresh beginning. And, and so many people come to know the Lord 
because there was somebody who was faithful to go to that family reunion and talk to that outlaw, that brother-in-law, whatever that might be, and uh, share the gospel with him. And here we're, we're seeing this, and he says, let me die since I've seen your face. I'm at peace. All is well with my soul. You know, beautiful change. Big change since back in chapter 42 when he says, all things are against me. Just let me die, right? Jacob can be that way. So can I. That's why we like the scriptures. We see ourselves in them, right? Uh, verse 31. Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, my brothers and those of my father's house who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds for their occupation has been to feed livestock. And they have bought their flock, brought their flocks, their herds, and all that they have. So it shall be when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? That you shall say, your servant's occupation has been with livestock from our youth even till now, both we and also our fathers, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Okay? We'd seen that earlier, and now we see it just flat out stated straight up. Uh, you could call it racism because that's exactly what it is. It's racism, but that is what it is, and this is the issue. And yet, remember, it was Pharaoh who told him, come down here. I'm going to take good care of you, right? And so uh, it's interesting. Every shepherd is an abomination. Now, Egyptians were fundamentally an agricultural society, um, and they had their priestly class, and especially amongst Pharaoh and the leaders, they were extremely well-groomed. You can almost say they were peacocks, the way they preened. And we see this in all the ancient uh, hieroglyphs, the, the makeup that they would wear and the, the gowns that they would wear. And um, they, they really cared about how they looked or appeared. Um, and they considered these guys unclean, and, and sheep were unclean beasts. They just step, detested them. You know, and I can imagine as a farmer, right, even you've probably heard this nickname for sheep as hooved locust right? Because they'll, they'll, eat, they'll eat anything right down to the root. They'll destroy it. Whereas a cow or some other livestock, they'll graze and they'll leave an inch or two and the grass grows back. But you put sheep on a pasture and it's toast. They'll just, if you don't manage it well, they'll, they'll ruin it. And so they really didn't like them. Okay. Uh, chapter 47, verse 1. Then Joseph went and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brothers, their flocks and their herds, and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. Indeed, they are in the land of Goshen. And he took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, both we also and our fathers. And they said to Pharaoh, We have come to dwell in the land because your servants have no pasture for their flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now, therefore, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, saying, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Have your father and your brothers dwell in the best of the land. Let them dwell in the land of Goshen. And if you know any competent men among them, then make them chief herdsmen over my livestock. Pharaoh's thinking, I'm getting a good deal. Everything that Joseph does prospers. It's because of Joseph, he not only saved the nation of Egypt, he saved pretty much the known planet because they had put away their increase and they had provisions when the famine came. Joseph is a superhero. You can have everything I, I have, basically. Tell your family now, hey, if they're shepherds, this is a good deal. You take care of my flocks for me. I'd like to see that multiplied times 12 what you've done for me, okay? Verse um, 
7, Then Joseph brought his father Jacob and set him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. So Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from before Pharaoh. Kind of interesting here. The days of my pilgrimage are 130 years. And I love it that he thinks of himself as a pilgrim, a sojourner, a foreigner in the land. We read in the book of Philippians that we are citizens of heaven. This is not our world, okay? We are, we are like Abraham, we read in Hebrews 11:9. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise, for he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And, you know, I think this is one of the things that sets Christians apart or ought to set Christians apart from the rest of the world is we don't hold on to stuff too tight. My mom always used to say, don't love anything too much that can't love you back. When we get to heaven, just like Pharaoh said, put all your family in the carts and go, we're going to be with each other in heaven, but these chairs won't be here, this pulpit won't be here, these fans won't be here, none of this is, this all going to burn, okay? And we have to be people that recognize that we're on pilgrimage, we're on our way like the Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, we're headed to a celestial city and there's going to be trials and there's going to be all kinds of things along the way, but that's, we don't park it. We don't park it here. We don't get too comfortable here. We need people that are always looking forward, looking out, seeing what's next, what's around the corner. What do you have for us now, you know, Lord? And that pilgrimage heart. He does say, for evil have been the days and years, few and evil have been the days and years of my life. And, and this is just a way of saying um, to, to Pharaoh, he's talking to the emperor of the greatest empire on the world, right? He's having an audience with him. And so it's a little bit um, humble, if you might say. Uh, my pilgrimage is 130 years. I'm just a pilgrim. I'm not a land baron. I'm not anybody like that. I'm a pilgrim. And few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And that's not necessarily like self-deprecation. It's, and it's not cynical. He's not bitter about his life. But his general character of his life lived in the flesh, Jacob, it had its fair share of woes. Can I get an amen? We all have them, right? And he's just being straight. He's being honest with Pharaoh. But also, he, he talks about few and evil have been the days and years of my life. But you have to consider also that his, this life doesn't compare to eternity, okay? And it, it doesn't compare in, in uh, Jacob's case to the life of Abraham and the life of Isaac. You know, he's had, he's had a rough life, but... He's got eternity out in front of him. And it talks about few and evil comparing to his uh, grandfather and father. Abraham lived 175 years. Isaac lived 180 years. At this point, we read that Jacob is 130 years. But we're going to read before the end of the chapter in verse 28 that he uh, died at 147 years. So he's going to have 17 years yet ahead of him here in Egypt as he settles in there kind of an interesting thing. I don't know if it means anything, but it just struck me as funny that Jacob had his son, his beloved son, for 17 years until the brothers threw him in a pit and shipped him off to Egypt. But now he's going to get the last 17 years of Joseph's life as well. Kind of an interesting balance, a bookend, if you will, and all of that. Then this is what's really cool. So Jacob, after he explained who he is, I'm a pilgrim, I'm 130 years old, 
um, he blesses Pharaoh, okay? And uh, it's interesting in that, you know, in the Philippines, and uh, we've got Michael and Michelle Farrar, Lloyd and Sherry's kids right, uh, right here. Michael is a teacher at the Bible College in the Philippines where Lloyd and I taught before, and they're here on furlough. But in the Philippines, we have a tradition called monopo. And monopo, is, it has to do with your hand, mono, and a, ter a term of respect. Um, you'll hear Neri say this all the time. She ends every sentence with po, po, po. It's just a way of saying respect to somebody. But monopo is where the children will come up to you, and whoever's older or elder or respected will put their hand out, and then they'll put their hand on their forehead. It's just a showing a, a way of respect, and it's a way that the elder then blesses the younger. In the Philippines, you go there, and the first thing you do is say, hi, my name is Mike. The second thing they want to know is, how old are you? I mean, that happens like that quick in your conversation when you first meet somebody because it's very important to know which one of us blesses the other one, right? And, and then this pecking order is established, and you get a, a, a title to your name. You're a kuya, you're an ate, or um, you're a dai, a, a girl, right? dong, a boy, but you have to know your pecking order. And here, Joseph has established his pecking order as a humble servant, uh, an Israelite, a pilgrim, and yet he's old, and Pharaoh does something very, very interesting, is that he allows Jacob to bless Pharaoh. Now, you have to remember, in the Egyptian religious cults, the way they practiced it, Pharaoh himself was the embodiment of the sun god Ra. He was God Almighty himself in their economy, and yet Joseph's father, the patriarch, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jacob then is able to bless Pharaoh. The scriptures say, without a doubt, it's the elder who always blesses the younger, and this is the way the blessing flows. And so it's kind of interesting in that way. Um, and then in uh, verses 11 and 12, and Joseph situated his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded. Then Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with bread according to the number in their families. Okay, and so here we have, and this is kind of a, a, a major, um, what is it like when you do Google Maps or Google Earth, you get one of those little um, push pin, right? You, you, you mark it. Well, the Bible has just marked the journey from creation to Adam and Eve to uh, Abel and up the line to Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now here we've got a little pushpin in the Bible. Israel, the 12 tribes, are now in Egypt, okay? And so it's kind of a, a, a marker point, if you will, if you're following along. Okay, uh, verse 13, uh, and we're going to hear see the early years of the famine contrasted with the latter years of the famine that they're in the midst of. Now, there was no bread in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan for the grain which they bought, and Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house, okay? And so, uh, in this early part of the famine, money's pouring into the treasury. Everybody needs the food. They bring their money. They buy the food. And the treasury is starting just to overflow in the land of Egypt. Pharaoh's getting really rich. Okay. Then it goes on. Uh, so when the money failed in the land of Egypt, so everybody's run out of money now. We can't go buy grain. 
in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us bread, for why should we die in your presence? For the money has failed. Then Joseph said, Give your livestock, and I will give you bread for your livestock if the money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the cattle of the herds, and for the donkeys. Thus he fed them with bread in exchange for the livestock that year. When that year had ended, they came to him the next year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is gone. My, also, my Lord also has our herds of livestock. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our lands. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for bread, and we and our land will be servants to Pharaoh. Give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. Then Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for every man of the Egyptians sold his field because of the famine of fear upon them. So the land became Pharaoh's, and as for the people, he moved them into the cities from one end of the borders of Egypt to the other end. Only the land of the priest he did not buy, for the priest had rations allotted to them by Pharaoh, and they ate their rations which Pharaoh gave them. Therefore they did not sell their lands. Then Joseph said to the people, Indeed, I have bought you and your land this day for Pharaoh. Look. Here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And it shall come to pass in the harvest that you shall give one-fifth to Pharaoh. Four-fifths shall be your own as seed for your field and for your food and for those of your households and as food for your little ones. So they said, You have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. And Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt to this day that Pharaoh should have one-fifth except for the land of the priests only, which did not become Pharaoh's. Did you catch all that? Okay, so in the first year of the years of the famine, they buy their grain. Money rinds out, they, they barter, they trade their flocks and livestock. That runs out. Pretty soon they're selling their land. They're even selling themselves into slavery just so that they might eat. Joseph, being magnanimous and gracious, says, Great, I'll take all that and I'll keep you alive, and uh, then I'm going to give you seed, and you'll plant, and when you bring in a harvest, I want one-fifth, 20%. That's my tax on your land, okay? And uh, so the land became Pharaoh's, okay? And it's, it's, a, it's a common process. We see it all the time. Power and wealth was multiplied greatly. In times of national crisis, the power of the central government often increases, okay? And I'm surprised with this crowd I'm not getting a boo out of all of you. Because sometimes we feel that pain, don't we? And it's, it's interesting. Um, but it's not necessarily unfair. A, Joseph just saved their life. Basically, they owe everything. Any, everything they've got is because he saved their life. He had the vision, the foresight to save it all up, and he was able there to dispense it to them. And uh, so he wasn't really being unfair. And then even when he gave them grain to plant the crops, he says, I want one-fifth, 20%. Um, and I would dare say many people today would be happy if we were taxed at a rate of 20%. <laughs> when you look at what we pay in federal income tax, state and local income taxes, sales taxes, property taxes, Social Security taxes, Medicare taxes, inheritance taxes, capital taxes, not to mention inflation taxes or Putin taxes or whatever they want to tell you the taxes are, 20% isn't such a bad deal. And you're alive, and you're prospering, and, and things are moving forward. Okay, verse 27. So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt, in the country of Goshen, and they had possessions there, and grew and multiplied exceedingly. We touched on this earlier, but multiplied exceedingly. Um, 
within 400 years, there would be several, like two million people there. Uh, Henry Morris, who is a, uh, uh, a scientist, and he's written much about the book of Genesis, but he did a little math. He calculated that with the initial group of five, okay, so that's Jacob and his four wives, if you remember, they grew to a clan of about 100 people in 50 years. And the 100 includes the 70 that we read about here, uh, plus a few wives and the sons not mentioned and grandchildren. He's, doing, he's rounding it out for the math. That's a growth rate of just over 6% a year. At that rate, there would be several million descendants by the time of the Exodus 430 years later. And so they did grow exceedingly. God's purpose for taking them out of the land of Canaan, for providing for them, giving them a place in Goshen, and using them as shepherds there, and, and giving that their ghetto that they could grow in is working, okay? And he's creating this nation, the nation of Israel, just like he promised Abraham, like the stars of the sky or like the sand of the seas. Verse 28, and Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Now if I found favor in your sight, please put your hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. Please do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, Joseph, I will do as you have said. Then he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. So Israel bowed himself on the head of the bed. And so this is a really solemn, solemn moment. Okay, I'm here. I've done everything God has asked me to do. I, I love you, son. I trust you, son. But I just have, this is my last request, okay? My last will and testament. Please take me home. Take me home to the land that I've been promised, to the graves where I buried my father and my grandfather and their wives and where my wife Rachel is in the promised land. Please take me back to be with my kin, to... to to be there. And so, kind of cool in that way. Um, and so, they make an oath, and, and sure enough, this is how it plays out. Chapter 48. We'll go rather rapidly through this. Now, it came to pass after these things that Joseph was told, indeed, your father is sick. Okay? This is 17 years later. We just read just a minute ago. It was 130 years, and they have this reunion. They get this land. They go through the um, famine, things get better, they multiply exceedingly, and he's now getting to the end of his life. Please bury me with my fathers. And it came to pass at the end of those 17 years that these things that Joseph was told, indeed your father is sick, and he took with him two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. We met them earlier. These are the sons born to him from the daughter of the priest of the Egyptian religion, and, and he had these two boys, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Jacob was told, look, your son Joseph is coming to you. And Israel strengthened himself and sat up on the bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the can land of Canaan and blessed me and said, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make a multitude of people and give you Give this land to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. And so this is the passing up the torch scene, okay? When one generation passes the baton to the next generation to take their lap through life and do what God has called them out to do. And so um, Jacob is, is rehearsing this before now Joseph and his two sons, okay? 
And it is interesting. It says, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz. Remember, Luz is the other name for Bethel. Jacob renamed Luz Bethel when he had that dream of God on the, on the ladder going into heaven. And he said, Bethel, surely God is in this place. This is the house of God. That's what Bethel means. Okay, and that's where he first met him. And he's now recounting this journey to his son and his grandsons. And he says, and God said, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And in fact, this is exactly what happened. The promise he gave to Abraham. And as you look at this, much of this wording or verbiage is exactly the same as it was given to Abraham and passed to Isaac and passed to Jacob, passed through Joseph and now to Manasseh and Ephraim. It's the same verbiage. It's the same words, okay? And it's really important that as we pass the word of God to people, that we make sure that the transmission lines are clear. Have you ever played that, that phone game where you get a message at one end and they whisper in your ear and they whisper and by the end you can't even make out what the original message was? It's interesting that in the scriptures, and it wasn't something that only the Jews did, many of the ancient peoples, in the way that they lived, they basically were hearing people, but they would, they would take and memorize things perfectly and then pass them down. Now, they didn't have a lot of uh, confusion out there, right? They didn't have televisions and radios and all this m media bombarding them and so many things to remember. They didn't have a lot to remember, so to speak. I'm not dissing them, but they didn't live in this, this information-saturated generation like we are. And so when somebody told you something, you would remember it, and then you would tell your kids that. And the transmission would be good and clear. And, uh, and I think it's important for us as Christians to make sure that when we share the Word of God, we share the Word of God. We give them the Word of God. You know, here at the Springs, I, I, I use the New King James Version. There's nothing sacred about that version, per se. There's lots of different translations out of the English, but I like it because it follows the King James, and that's a very prevalent Bible in our community, and so it sounds very comfortable and familiar to people when you share, but it's easier on the ears and the mind than the Elizabethan English of the King Jimmy. So I like to use the New King James. But one of the things I really like about the New King James, and I could say this about the American Standard and some others, is they are a very literal translation where they take the words that were written, ancient words, and translate that word into what it means. Now, what this does mean, and you have it often with the King James especially, it can be difficult to read. And there's other versions. Uh, the NIV is uh, a classic one where they have a more dynamic translation. Well, they say, well, the meaning of what they were saying in Hebrew is more like this in our modern English. But what you, you sometimes lose a little bit in translation. And again, I, I, I am a big fan of using multiple versions when you study the Bible, get out some of everything and you'll start feeling the word of God and seeing it in the little nuances and things like that. But I think it's very important that we are careful that when we say God said, we don't put words in his mouth and we don't take words out or text out of his mouth, right? That we be straight up with it. And this is what's going on. He's now passing this blessing on to the next generation. And it says in verse 5, and now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. It's interesting because Manasseh is the firstborn, but look how Jacob refers to them, secondborn first. And you're going to see something here. Now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. 
I'm taking your kids, basically. What he's saying is I'm going to adopt them. He says, as Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. Reuben, firstborn. Simeon, secondborn. But Jacob's saying, I'm taking your boys and I'm going to adopt them as mine. They're going to sit in place of Reuben and in place of Simeon. Reuben and Simeon, they're out. Ephraim and Manasseh, they're in as far as the inheritance goes. Okay? So, uh, at any rate, we'll, this is the tricky part where I'm not using my notes from my Bible. <laughs> okay. So, they shall be mine, right? And it's interesting, and he adopted them, but it does make up a, a, a funny little conundrum in the scriptures that there were 12 sons, right? And then Joseph has two sons, and now these two sons are being adopted in, but Joseph doesn't stop being a son. So, you've got the 12 sons plus Joseph. When you, when you add it all up, you end up with 13 sons in the tribes of Israel. And it's interesting, as you go through the Old Testament, there are at least 13 different lists of the tribes of Israel, differing from one another, where one name of the sons is left out to make room for some others. And so it's kind of a fluid thing. When we talk about the 12 tribes of Israel, know that there's 13 and that it's an idiom or it's a phrase or it's a concept for the family of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Jewish nation. This is what that term, the 12 tribes of Israel, means, and it shouldn't be taken too woodenly, too stiff, okay, in understanding it. It'll help your understanding as you go through the Scriptures. But 12, and this is why it's used, is a, is a number that's special to the Hebrews. You could say it's special to God because you see it all through the Scriptures, okay? There's 12 tribes, as I mentioned. We know there's 12 apostles, okay? We read earlier in the genealogies, there's 12 princes of Ishmael. Now, there's 12 pillars on Moses' altar, and there's 12 stones on the high priest's breastplates. There's 12 uh, cakes of showbread at the tabernacle, and in the tabernacle there's 12 silver powders, 12 bowls, 12 golden pans for the service of the tabernacle. We know there was 12 spies that were sent out by Joshua, with Joshua and Caleb to spy out the land. Uh, there's 12 memorial stones when they entered back into the land through the Jordan River. There's 12 governors of the nation under Solomon, and there were 12 stones in Elijah's altar as he built it. There's 12 in each of the groups of the musicians and singers for Israel's worship. There's 12 hours in a day, and there's 12 year, months in a year. There were 12 men, Ephesian men, filled with the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. And we know from Revelation there were 12,000 each from the 12 tribes sealed and preserved through the tribulation, the 144,000. We know that heaven has 12 gates of 12 pearls, and there are 12 angels at the gates, and that the New Jerusalem has 12 foundations which each, with each of the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb inscribed on them. And we know that the dimensions of New Jerusalem, its length, its breadth, its height are all 12,000 furlongs. And we have the tree of life in the heavens, which has its 12 fruits. You could say 12 is a special number, okay? And so it has meaning, but you don't want to get stuck on the number as much as the idea that it's a picture of government as God is ruling through a group of people, whether it's the tribes of Israel or the apostles or how he structures the tabernacle, it's always a picture of that 
governance. In verse 40, in verse 7, it says, But as for me, when I came from Badanaram, Rachel died beside me in the land of Canaan on the way when there was a little distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And so this is Jacob. These are his dying words, and he's stating those things which were precious to him. He said, please bring me back. You know, that's where my wife died. That's where my relatives are buried. That's, that's where my heart is buried. I love the story of David Livingston. We just had our vacation Bible school, and David Livingston was one of the guides through the story. But David Livingston himself left England, and he spent his life ministering to people in Africa. And uh, it, he was, he's, his body is buried in, in England. Is it St. Abbey's? It's, it's one of the places where they bury all the famous people in England. But they took his heart out. The, the natives took his heart out before they shipped his body back. And they buried his heart in Africa because he's, they said his heart's in Africa. And to this day, David Livingston's heart is in Africa. Well, Jacob's heart was in Israel, right? At, at whatever he went through, all the, the scheming and the deceiving and all the things of Jacob's life, he finished well. He got to the end of his life, and he has eyes fixed on the price, the upward call of Christ Jesus to heaven. That, that was, that's how he finished. And uh, then verse 8, Then Israel saw Joseph's son and said, Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me in this place. And he said, Please bring them to me, and I will bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so he could not see. That's kind of important. When you look at this story, he can't see what he's doing, okay? Then Joseph brought them near him and kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I had not thought to see your face, but in fact, God has also shown me your offspring. So Joseph brought them from beside his knees, and he bowed down with his face to the earth. So Joseph says, these are my sons who God has given me. Joseph recognized they were a blessing or a gift from God. Manasseh, the firstborn, Ephraim, the secondborn. You might remember Manasseh means forgetfulness. His first son, God has given me a son. The joy has caused me to forget all the tribulation and hardship that brought me to this place. Look, it brought me my son. This is, all that was worth it to get me here. And then the secondborn, Ephraim, means fruitfulness, okay? Forgetfulness and fruitfulness. And so he bows with his face to the earth. And remember, Joseph is his son, but he's still second in charge, prime minister of Egypt. He's a high official, and his father is nevertheless, he bows before his father, showing reverence to him. Even though he is in, in position, maybe higher, he respects his father, and it's a beautiful thing that way. Um, and verse uh, 13, Joseph took both them, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and he brought them near him. Then Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hands knowingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. Now, remember I said he can't see, right? So he can't see, but he knows this is the custom, and this is the way it was done. He's going to reach out his hands, and he's going to bless both of the boys. And the custom was that the right hand Whoever sat at the right hand would be given the greater privilege. And so he knows this is how Joseph is going to bring the two boys to him with Manasseh to um, Jacob's right hand and Ephraim to Manasseh's left hand. But as he reaches out his hands, he crosses. And he puts his right hand on Ephraim, the secondborn, and his left hand on Manasseh, right? And, and it's interesting how this all kind of plays out. Um, and it says that he was guiding his hands knowingly, okay? 
because he knew what he was doing. He knew exactly what he intended to do. He deliberately chose the second born to give the greater blessing to than the second. And he would know a little bit about that, right? Um, and, and Isaac would know a little bit about that. And we see that quite often in God as he takes that second born and gives him the greater blessing. In this, I see something. I don't want to make a dogma out of it, but it's a rather interesting thing that I, you know, we, we are born into this world as sinners. We come into this world with a sin nature. But through Jesus Christ, we are born again. And the old man passes away and we become a new creation in Christ. And which one is the greater blessing? The second birth, right? And I think that's a pattern that we see here in this. Uh, verse 15, And he blessed Joseph and said, God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. So this is a blessing. And he's putting the blessing of the God who has fed me and the angel who has redeemed me, that blessing goes on to the boys. Let my name be upon them in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. Let them grow in multitude in the midst of the earth. So he's passing the baton. He's passing the torch. One of the things that's kind of fun here is he calls God the God who has fed me all my life long. Not only is he acknowledging that all of his provision has come from the Lord, but this word for fed me is literally the word shepherded me. This is the first appearance in the Bible saying that God is a shepherd. The Lord is our shepherd. I shall not want, David would write in Psalm 23, but it was first recorded here in Genesis off the lips of Jacob, okay? He has shepherded me all my life long, and look at this one, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. We know that when we see this personage, the angel who has redeemed me, the one he met at Bethel, that night as he saw the vision of Christ at the top of the ladder, this is Jesus Christ. This is an appearance of Jesus Christ, Jesus in Genesis right here, the angel who has redeemed me, and he's putting that blessing on the next generation as he passes the torch. It's kind of groovy, right? Um, and so, and, and it comes out, it comes to pass. In, in the future, Ephraim does grow to be the strongest tribe. In fact, it's referred to in Jeremiah as the whole northern tribes of Israel are all subcategorized under Ephraim. That's a nickname for all the northern tribes because they grow to be the most populous and the strongest. And so um, this blessing does come to pass. Um, verse 17, now when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. So he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Put your hand, right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He shall also become a people and he shall also be great. But truly, his younger brother shall be greater than he and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, by you, Israel will bless, saying, May God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. And thus he set Ephraim before Manasseh. And so he said, this is going to be a saying in the future. The future will be, and I could say to you guys, may God bless you as he blessed Ephraim and Manasseh. But in that blessing, which will be now handed down even to this very day, the roles are changed, and Ephraim becomes the greater, okay? And so it was something that was set into motion back in those days. Um, and it's interesting, firstborn, you know, we talk about the, the birth order, right? Whoever came first. Um, in Jeremiah 31.9, I mentioned, we read, For I am the father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. 
Now we know, and people would say there's a contradiction in the Bible. We know Ephraim wasn't born first. He was the second. The Bible's got it wrong. The Bible doesn't have it wrong. We don't understand the word firstborn, prototokos, in the New Testament. Uh, Jesus is referred to as the firstborn, and Jesus wasn't even born. He's eternal God, okay? And so God but calls him the firstborn, the preeminent one, the one with all the privilege. And this is that idea of, of who he is. Um, verse 21, Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am dying, but God be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given you one portion above your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. Okay? So he's saying, Behold, I am dying. Last will and testament. Mark these words, okay? Um, and, and I pray that you come back to the promised land, that, that you fulfill God's call not only on your life, but on, on, on all of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the descendants of Israel, the dynasty, the family, that would bring forth Jesus Christ. It's interesting in this idea of passing on the torch well, I'll, I'll just mention, it says, which I took from the Amorite with my sword and my bow. This is the only mention right there of Jacob having some kind of a uh, conflict with an Amorite and taking their property. It, we don't see it anywhere else in Scripture to understand when that happened, who it was that he was fighting with. But we see it here that he somewhere in his history had that fight, got that land, and now he's given that land to Joseph and Joseph's descendants. That'll be part of their tribe. And it will be redeemed in about 400 years when the nation of Israel goes back into the promised land. Spurgeon, a great commentator from the 1800s, uh, he wrote this, if Abraham dies, there is Isaac. And if Isaac dies, there's Jacob. If Jacob dies, there's Joseph. If Joseph dies, Ephraim and Manasseh survive. The Lord shall never lack a champion to bear his standard high among the sons of men. Only let us pray God to raise up more faithful ministers day and night. We have plenty of a sort, but oh, for more that will weigh out 16 ounces to the pound of gospel in such a way that the people will receive it. We have too much fine language, too much florid eloquence, and little full and plain gospel preaching. But God will keep up the apostolic succession. Never fear of that. When Stephen is dying, Paul's not far off. When Elijah is taken up, he leaves his mantle behind him. And this is the idea of pouring into that next generation. We just had the youth conference here on Friday. And the theme was just joy, joy in the Lord. And, and there were 60 kids there that were just coming back to the Lord. In fact, let me read this to you if I can. And, and uh, worship team, you ought to probably get on up here because I should be done. Uh, but this was written to me. Frankie and Jasmine sent it. it uh, she said, The Joy Youth Conference was amazing. There were 60 people there, kids and leaders. God really showed up and spoke mightily through His Word. Prayer time and worship, and the kids grew in the Lord as well as in their joy in Him rekindled. It was a, glor it was a glorious work of His, Holy Spirit, who strengthened, convicted, corrected, revived, and restored many kids in their faith. It was a truly wonderful time seeing the next generation of leaders rise up and minister and serve these youth who are the upcoming generation. God is on the move. Hallelujah. <laughs> All glory to His name. He did a mighty work. Praise Him. And thank you to everyone for praying and for you parents trusting us with your kids. We love them and will continue to be faithful to keep pointing them to Jesus. From Frankie and Jasmine, they sent that this morning. So, 
God gives them a portion above the other brothers, the special blessing that would be reserved for Joseph, his, his beloved son, um, and the promise that I'll bring you back. The promise. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. It's interesting in, in the life of Jacob, as we watch his progress with the Lord from being born again to passing it on to the next generation, back in Genesis 25, when he first met, God said, I am with you. He's, God gives the young believer every possible assurance of his presence and grace. Then he says in Genesis 31.3, I will be with you. God expects the growing believer to trust he will be with us even when we only have the promise of his presence. He's given us the promise even if you don't feel it. And then God has been with me. Uh, we read in Genesis 31.5, Jacob speaking. He says, God gives us a glorious testimony to the mature believer able to say how God has been with us even when we haven't felt his presence the way we wished. And finally, in Genesis 48, 21, God says again, God will be with you. God gives the mature believer the opportunity to encourage others with the promise of God's presence. Have you received the promise? Do you know Jesus as your Lord, your Savior? Has you confessed that he is risen from the grave, that he has conquered sin and death, that he is able to cleanse you of all unrighteousness and make you a child of God, heaven bound. You're a citizen of God. Have you made that confession? If you have, then you have a job to do, and that is to pass it on. Find somebody else and share that good news with them. And that's the story that we read today, that God is on the move and he has not stopped working. Let's go ahead and pray. Father God, I thank you, Lord, that you continue that work which you began in us and that you will be the one faithful to complete it. In spite of our failings, our detours, Lord Jesus, we can trust in you and know that what you said you would do, you will do. Help us, Lord, to be people not only that live in that and rejoice in that, but people who give it away help others to know the joy of your salvation. I pray that the purpose of this church would be for lives to be saved and discipled and to be sent out. Help us grow, Lord, in your image that we might all come to one body praising and worshiping you at that throne for all eternity. In Jesus' name, amen? Amen. Thanks for joining us today. To learn more about the Springs Calvary Chapel, please visit our website at www.thespringscalvarychapel.org. Join us in person at the Springs in Hebron, Idaho, or here on the podcast as we worship together in spirit and in truth.